Anybody ever grow up playing Where's Waldo? Like the game, or the book, I guess. Where's Waldo? And it's, and it's a really simple book. Um, and, and I loved reading as a kid, especially when I wasn't able to read, because it's pretty simple. There's a guy in a red and white striped beanie and a red and white striped uh, sweater, and you got to find him. That's pretty much it. And it gets harder as the books would go along, right? But the way you spot him is that you look for the red and white stripes because, well, people don't generally just wear red and white stripes with a red and white striped beanie, and that's what you're ultimately looking for. Not his eyes, not his chin or the glasses, but the beanie and the sweater because, well, he should really stick out in that space. Last week... uh, Jack Day joined me on stage and shared a little piece of her story. It was awesome. And we talked about connecting her story to the story of Joseph. Because Joseph tells his brothers after everything that happened, hey, what you caused for evil, God caused for good. Now, this story starts in Genesis chapter 37. And it runs through the rest of the book of Genesis with one exception as a chapter. Because in chapter 38... The story shifts entirely, only for one chapter. Joseph is not mentioned in Genesis 38. It's actually about Joseph's brother. And part of the reason that we dismiss little kids to go to children's church is because of what happens in Genesis chapter 38. You see, uh, there was this, uh, one of Joseph's brothers by the name of Judah, he had three sons, and his oldest son married this woman named Tamar. Well, Judah's son ends up dying. And because of how culture and the times worked back then, it was custom that the second son would then marry Tamar, and they would conceive, and then that would be considered the oldest brother's heir during that time. However, the middle brother, he didn't want to give an heir. He didn't want to have a child with Tamar, so when the time came to conceive, he didn't. I'll leave it at that, because I said PG-13 and not rated R. So as a part of this, God sees this, gets upset, and he strikes down the middle brother. So now there's one brother left. Now this brother's young. Like we're talking four, five, six, seven, eight years old. Really young guy. And so, but according to custom, that youngest brother was supposed to come and marry Tamar. Now Tamar would have no way of of taking care of herself, of of being able to uh, conceive children because she was pledged to the sons of Judah. Well, as a part of this, Judah tells Tamar, hey, my son, my youngest, he's not ready yet, so go home. Go, be, go to the home of your parents, and when this son is old enough, I will send for you to come back, and, and y'all can be married and, and have children then. He sa- uh, she says, okay, she goes home. Judah was never planning on giving this youngest son to Tamar in marriage. He was 0 for 2 in terms of keeping sons alive who married Tamar, so he said, we're not doing this. So as a part of this, Judah's youngest son does come of age, and Judah finds a different woman to marry this youngest son. Well, Tamar hears about this, and she's upset, and she wants a child. She was promised this. She was supposed to have it. Now, during all this time, too, Judah's wife ends up dying as well. So Judah's this widower, and he's heading to a separate gate, a separate town, and he's going to, into the entrance of the city. Tamar changes clothes to disguise herself as a prostitute. And wearing the prostitute's clothing, she wears a veil over her face, so she's not very recognizable. She goes to the gate of the city, and Judah sees this prostitute and does not realize that it's Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Goes to her as a widower and said, 
I'd like to spend the evening with you. And now there wasn't, you know, really cash money during this time. There wasn't currency, so it was okay. Uh, Tamar says, what will you give me? Again, Judah has no idea that it's Tamar. And she, and uh, so Tamar says, what, what will you give me to ensure that you're going to actually like pay me and what you're promising to pay me? Judah takes a couple of personal items, gives them to Tamar and said, will this suffice? And when I bring you your payment, you can give me these back. She said, done. They spend the evening together. Uh, Judah never realizes that it's Tamar the entire time. A few months go by and word reaches back to Judah, hey, that daughter-in-law who's supposed to be waiting on you to send an heir, she's pregnant. Now, this would be considered extremely shameful to Tamar and to the family of Judah during this time. It'd be highly offensive. So Judah goes, immediately grabs his stuff, and starts heading to where Tamar is supposed to be. And he's already told all his friends, y'all come with me. We are going to burn her. She is going to be burned alive. That is the law. I am furious. She has rebelled against exactly who I told her to be and who she is supposed to be. Tamar hears about this. And so she finds a messenger, and she takes those two personal items that Judah had given her before their night spent together. He says, tell Judah, go give those two items and tell Judah, these two items belong to the father of my child. Talk about an awkward moment to take place. Judah receives these two items and then from here on, it immediately becomes this, hey, don't tell anybody that this took place. Judah immediately, like they bury the story, which is weird because Genesis 37, it's Joseph and this bad thing happened, but Joseph didn't really do anything wrong. And then Judah, something unfortunate happens and Judah's like, hey, let's not tell anybody. Genesis 39 picks up with Joseph and we don't hear a whole lot out of Judah and Tamar again after that because this would have brought an insane amount of shame to not just to Judah, but to his brothers, to his father, Jacob. And so it became this, don't tell anybody. We're, We're the sons of Jacob. Jacob's a big deal. We can't ruin his reputation. Don't tell him this happened, okay? And, and I can't help but look at that story and immediately then goes to Joseph and Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. We talked about it last week. And I'm thinking, what in the world is that story doing in Scripture? See, Tamar, at the end of chapter 38, the uh, story goes that Tamar actually was carrying twins at the time. One of those twin sons was named Perez. I'm going to stop there because I want to skip to a little different story, a story that's a little more current and a little more modern day, but I can't help but notice how it was this big, hey, don't tell anybody that this happened. No one can ever know about these two twin boys. No one can know about Perez and his brother. No one, because we have to keep up this appearance. Um, Two weeks ago, uh, I was out of town and Alan Kirk preached in my place, and, and it was Really interesting hearing just how similar our stories were. And we've talked about this a few times before. See, um, we were both raised in Middle Tennessee, not in the same cities or areas. We didn't meet until um, our, our family ended up here. But we, we both had a lot of Tennessee connections in a number of ways. And the churches we grew up at were really, really similar too. And um, well, one of the things my college professors told me about high school and, and, and accomplishments and accolades when we were in high school uh, because we were putting together resumes to, pre- to prepare to leave college and go out into the big boy world, the big girl world, and where, where everyone, you know, is professional, and because he noticed some of us on our resumes were writing some of our accomplishments in high school, um, you know, all district track, or lead role of this play, or 
um, you know, band director, and he said, take everything you accomplished in high school and throw it out. Unless you started a nonprofit organization that was worth over a million dollars, throw it out, okay? Nobody cares. And he said, here's why. Everybody was all district in something, okay? Everybody was all district in something. That's one of the reasons they created those accolades, was to help people in their college applications. So here's some of my story. See, Alan was this guy who, um, he ends up playing soccer at at college because he was a good athlete. Um, I, I was not. All right, I, I, was, I played basketball. I wasn't very good, but I was all district, but I didn't get an award for it. I was the guy who would have been all district in church, okay? That would have been me, seriously. It's because I was raised in a family where knowing your Bible was really important. I knew all 66 books of the Bible by the time I was seven years old. When I was in high school, I got really close to reciting them all backwards at one point. One of my heroes was the preacher at the church I grew up at who knew them frontwards, backwards, and would start in the middle and work his way out, okay? That's not cool, I will tell you right now. It's not cool. Don't think it's cool. It's not. But I was also the guy who, as a kid, my parents made sure that I won the award at VBS every year for most visitors brought to VBS every year. Um, I, I went to a private Christian high school, uh, Lipscomb Academy. <clears throat> if you've heard of Lipscomb University, um, it's, there's a K-12 through academy. I went there 5th through 12th grade. I was the guy who didn't just get hundreds on Bible tests. I was the one who corrected the teachers whenever they misquoted something or got a story wrong. I was their least and most favorite student all at the same time, all right? I, I drove them nuts, and at the same time, they're like, well, he did get it right. So that, and that was me. In seventh grade, the, they, some kids started a rumor that I memorized the Bible, and I didn't correct it because I felt a lot of pride about this. Um, I, I, and any time I had any church camp thing, any, any, um, any mission trip thing, I wanted to be the best at it because I, I wasn't that great, and I, I was really insecure about a lot of things of who I was. And, and I'm talking like, I, like I'm bragging about a number of things, and it's, I brag about it for this reason. It was because of who I saw myself as. Because it was a total lie the entire time. Because while I talked about how much I had my life together, while I, while I would try to portray, I was the kind of, I was the guy who even talked about, you know, hey, all of those of you who are, who are having premarital sex and, and who are going, in, and going out to parties and experimenting with drugs, you can come talk to me. It's okay. Given I don't do any of those things, and I look down on those people all the time, um, I, I was the one who said, I'll minister to you. It'll, it'll be Okay. And the whole time during this, part of this influence had to do with the culture that I grew up at and was raised in during that time. Because during that time when I was raised in this culture, it was understood in that time and in that space that you did not talk about anything that wasn't going well in your life. See, I grew up in what we would call a suit church. Apparently, none of you got the memo about Classy Sunday today. Shame on you. But... I grew up in a suit church, okay? Anybody else grow up in a suit church? You wear suits, like men wear suits to church. Ladies wear nice dresses. Now, I want to start by saying this. If you grew up in a suit church, if you're a big suit person, nothing wrong with that, okay? There's nothing wrong, sinful, bad. But to me, the suit meant something else. Dressing like this, and and by the time I got to high school, I was wearing suits to church. My parents didn't make me, but I thought that's what you do when, when you're a good Christian who's got it all together. Yet when, when you've got these, these areas and these things, and maybe you grew up in a suit church like me where at suit church, they have an invitation where you come forward because apparently 
getting someone to come forward and share all of their worst things they've ever done in their life in front of 300 people they don't know is a good idea, apparently. Um, so maybe yours is like mine. No one ever came forward for the invitation. No one ever did that. They didn't know those people. They didn't want them to know what's going on because they wore the suit. And so I portrayed the exact same thing. I was the guy who had it all together. I was the guy, my youth minister would call me and say, will you do the devotional for me? Because I'm not really prepared tonight. And I figure you know Bible as well, if not more so than I do. So could you, could you take it? Yeah, sure. I got it. I'll take it. And here's the part that people didn't know about. See, when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was, uh, I was surfing the web. I was on the internet. I was doing social media. You know what I had? I had a MySpace. That was a good MySpace. And, uh, and so I, I was looking up, I don't know, probably ESPN or something, and I was about 12 years old. And this was in the era when pop-ups were a thing. And they're still a thing today, but, you know, we all have software on our computers that basically doesn't let pop-ups come up. And so pop-ups would come up, and, you know, you just X out of it. Except one night while I was looking up something on my computer, I, I saw an image of a woman who wasn't wearing a whole lot of clothing at the age of 12, and I didn't, I hadn't had a whole lot of people talk to me about this, but I knew that I liked what I saw, and I knew that I wanted to keep looking at it, and it didn't seem to be hurting anyone else, so I clicked on it. And then I saw a few more. And then a couple days later, I, I saw some other images that I also liked seeing and didn't seem, no one was around, so how could it be hurting anybody? So I looked some more. And then this became a pretty regular routine for me of seeing these images. And then two or three years later, I, I, I'm in a, some class in one of my schools. And, and I mean, I, I heard a lot of lessons growing up. My family, like Alan's family, we were in church every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, sometimes we would go to like, help with something and the doors weren't open. We just broke in to serve and love people. And uh, in addition to that, when you go to a private Christian school, you don't just hear Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night lessons. You hear also Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday lessons as well. And eventually one of those lessons talked about sexual purity and talked about what lust and pornography are. And I, the way I rationalized it was, well, I, I've got the suit on, so I, I don't have, there's, there's way more graphic images that I could look at, and I choose not to, and so it's okay. And a couple years later, some of my friends are talking to me and saying, you know, I, I was looking at those things, and, and I learned just how poisonous those are to me. And I end up talking with a few people at, at my church and running into some different circles, and See, what I heard about those who look at pornography, those who look at graphic images, were, uh, well, those were freaks. Those were the perverts of the world. Those were the sick, twisted people. I heard no, no one really looks at that unless you are really, really messed up. And it was right then that I realized, I got to wear a suit. I have to. I can't, I can't let people know that I've been getting into this, but at the same time, Here's the hardest part. Here's the most devastating part to my story. It wasn't lying to other people that was hard. That was really easy. It was lying to myself. Because I told myself, I don't have a problem. Hey, hey, this, this child that, that Judah and Tamar are, are, are having, hey, let's just let's pretend like it's not even there. It's okay. It's no big deal. And mine was the same situation. Hey, I'm just, I'm fine. I don't have a problem. It's all good. 
And this came on and on. And by the time I got to the end of high school, I realized, you know what, this is something I shouldn't do. It's something I need to get away from. But I'm at the end of high school. I'll stop when I'm ready. Okay? That'll be fine. If you know about the stages of addiction, then you know I'm, I'm hooked at this point. Very much so. This continues on in college when I decide to go into ministry and, and I take on youth internships where young men in these youth groups would come to me and say, Casey, I'm struggling with pornography. And I would sit down and say, hey, let's talk about it. It's okay. That's a hard struggle. And then an hour or two after those conversations, I'm going and doing exactly what they were confessing to me in the first place. The pornography was difficult, but y'all, it was the shame that I carried of how fake everything I was existed. And this lie just ate at me and ate at me and ate at me. Until finally, toward the end of college, one night, I decided that I would rather come clean and risk losing everything and everyone in my life than continue living a lie. That was more important to me. So that night, I I called... um, kind of a random person, but someone who had confessed to that same struggle whom I really looked up to and admired. That next day, I was, we were home from, from college, but all of my friends in college knew I was a ministry major. I was someone they could come and talk to, and I message each of them and say, here's who I really am. And it was in that moment that I knew that I was finally ready. I was finally ready to take off the jacket and let people see who I really was. I was finally ready to be someone that I knew I was the whole time, but was convinced that no one would want to actually accept, that no one would want to actually love, because who would want someone who wears the jacket over their filth in their lives? And so I, <laughs> I shoot an email to these guys because we're scattered all over the country for summer, and I say, here's who I am. And if you want to get rid of me, in your life, if you don't want to ever talk to me again, if you feel like I'm a fraud, I get it. Because that's how I feel about myself. I don't deserve your friendship. I don't deserve your trust. And I don't deserve your love. And it was in this moment that I learned what grace is. Because person after person whom I shot these emails to responded and said, hey, I'm not condoning what you're doing, but I want you to know I still love you. I'm still here for you. I still believe you. I still believe in you. And I want to help you. How can I help? I even had a few people say, hey, how are you able to do that? Because I'm struggling with the exact same thing. And so for 10, 12 years, this addiction plagued my life. It controlled me in some deep, deep ways. And I was the person who, when, when I decided I needed help, I decided then to go to a a 12-step recovery program called Celebrate Recovery. See, it was really hard for me to go to this place because I had gone with some friends to help and support them. I went to like AA, and I I saw how how those operated. But I had been told my whole life, no, those are the sick, twisted freaks who are perverts, who do not deserve love, who should never be the people who lead, who, who should never be the people that we look up to spiritually. They don't have any part of their life together. And I remember going there and looking around at all the people and thinking, these are all the freaks I've been told to look down upon my whole life. And I am one of them. You know, the hardest part was they have this moment during um, 
not just Celebrate Recovery, but any 12-step program where they ask, who wants to go on the road to recovery? Who wants to begin their journey of healing? And I raised my hand, which was maybe the hardest part, because I had to acknowledge I was actually behind all the other people there. They had already started their road. I hadn't. And it was on that night that I remember hearing the voice of God for the very first time in my life. And I've only heard the voice of God like two, maybe three times. This was one of them. The minister running the program, he, he takes the road to recovery chip. I raise my hand, I stand up, people start clapping, all these strangers I don't know who I've been told to judge, they are the worst of the worst, right? They're all cheering me on and that minister gives me a hug and I hear the voice of God tell me, I am so glad you're here right now. I burst into tears after they give me the chip. I hold it together as long as I can because, hey, I was a suit church kid. You don't show emotion. And then I run to the bathroom and cry my eyes out for 45 minutes straight. And part of it was the thought of how did I become one of these freaks and perverts who no one wanted or loved. But also it was because I know I can't fall any further. And God and grace are about to catch me. God works incredible stories and weaves them together. He puts Jesus in so many of them. You know the story that is so interesting and so weird? It was the story that Fran read to start church this morning. See, Fran read this story about this guy named Barabbas. And it ought to be just, it ought to just be glossed over, right? Like it ought to be this story where, okay, there's Barabbas, he's a criminal, a crook, and there's Jesus, and they, they decide they want Jesus to be crucified. Okay, let's go to the cross. Because we sing about the cross, we sing about uh, the, the death and the burial and the resurrection. We don't talk about Barabbas a whole lot. But this story's so weird. Barabbas doesn't even have a line. It's in all four of the Gospels. At no point in any of them does Barabbas speak. And yet Pilate brings them up and he, and he has Jesus here. And then he has Barabbas. And he, and he said, here's, here's a, so it's my custom. I, I'm going to release one of these prisoners to you on your, on your sacred little festival holiday. So here's Barabbas. Barabbas is guilty of insurrection and murder. And, and, and here's Jesus, whom you call king of the Jews. And let me tell you something about insurrection and murder. You don't do it on accident. You don't commit insurrection on accident. You don't think, hey, I was just walking on the road and I accidentally committed insurrection. It is premeditated. As in this wrong thing that Barabbas did that cost people their lives, he did it on purpose. This Barabbas, he knew what was wrong and he did it anyway. Or there's Jesus, this king of the Jews. And, and who do you want? Uh, we want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And even Pilate, who doesn't care about the Jewish people, gets up and says, okay, you do understand, what, what has he done wrong? What, what crime has he committed? He's cross-examined him. He, he sent Jesus to Herod who cross-examined And they both were like, we didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. So we're not sure what to do with him. And all the latter, no, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And so Pilate says, okay, free Barabbas. Soldiers walk up and they unlock his chains. The chains and shackles fall to the feet of Barabbas and he walks down. I mean, this is a crook. This is a thug. And he goes and he joins his, his friends who had, who had freed him, who had said, we want him instead. And this story, here's why it, it connects. And I don't care who you are and what you've done. I am Barabbas and so are you.
Because, yeah, we've all had moments where we got a little angry and a little cuss word slipped out. And there's also been moments when we might have been having a drink and we drank a little too much. And there might have been a moment where I just wasn't thinking and I bought a cat. And, you know, there's all these different moments that take place that where, we, where we have little things that we do wrong in our life, okay? I'm going to take a lot of flack for that last one. I apologize, okay? But Barabbas, no, this wasn't on accident. That wasn't it. No, Barabbas knew what he was getting himself into. He deserved the shackles. He deserved the chains. And I'm sitting here thinking about my own story and all the areas that I should have been condemned and lost. And I think I deserve the shackles too. I absolutely deserve them. And he walks free, and I can't help but wonder what the mind of Jesus must have been like. I can't help but think about where Paul writes to Romans when he sees that Barabbas not only leaves, he's probably going to go do it again. And Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were doing wrong, knowing it was wrong, and did it anyway, Christ died for us. And I can't help but wonder and think about the idea of Jesus where they're letting Barabbas go and Jesus has so many opportunities and he's silent the whole time because he knew that in order for this whole cosmic plan to take place, in order for all of the world and humanity to ever be freed from sin, he knew that the father would need to treat Barabbas like Jesus so that he could treat Jesus like Barabbas. As a part of this, it, you know, Jesus is sitting there thinking, let him go. Father, let him go. I know. I know I didn't do wrong. I know he did wrong. I know he deserves those chains. Let him go. Because I love these people. And maybe the most hurt, hurtful thing that I think about in my story and so many of your stories is I think about the suits that we wear. I think about the, the shackles that we hold, because if I had shackles around my arms, if I had them on my wrists, if I had them over my waist, would you see them if I had the jacket on? And so perhaps this is an invitation. This is an opportunity as we take our communion time together. You know, I started off, we started off with this story in Genesis 38 of Judah and Tamar, and hey, don't tell anybody that that happened. But people did find out because, well, it made scripture, Right? And, and then the story just ends. It comes back, though. Matthew chapter 1. Something that was so messed up that would have been frowned upon by society that would have gotten them kicked out of the Jewish community, maybe even killed. Matthew chapter 1, when they're talking about the lineage of Jesus Christ, who is in there but Perez, the son of Judah, and Tamar. So you have an opportunity this morning to live into this life, to take the jacket off, to acknowledge, hey, I've not only messed up, I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. I'm just as much as Barabbas as anybody else. So I'm going to invite you now to stand up and head to a table. You're welcome to go to any of these tables. We've got uh, f what, four in the front. I've got, I think we've got five in the back. Um, spread out. Go to whichever table you want to go to. It can be near to you. It can be a long way away. But I'm going to invite you to head to one of these tables. And if you don't feel comfortable doing this, you're, you're more than welcome to just stay at your seat. It is not required 
that you, that you participate in this, given the communion is there. Some of you, it might be difficult to get to those tables. If you need someone to run communion to you, that's totally fine, okay? But we're going to have a little bit of time, and uh, one thing I love about uh, Table Sunday is that, you know, we, we usually pray over this offering. We pray over our communion time. There's no designated person to do this. You at your tables, y'all figure that out, okay? It's going to be messy. It's going to be weird, uh, and that's fine. It's all fine. But here's what you have an opportunity to do this morning as a part of this Table Sunday. We have two prerequisites for taking communion at our church, two And if you don't meet either one of them, then you don't want to come to the table anyway. Number one, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of the living God. Gave his life for you, was resurrected after three days. You need to believe that. Number two, you need to be able to admit that you are in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. You believe in God and you need his grace. You you believe in Christ, you need his grace. If If you have those two things, feel free, please approach the table. Tell us about what's going on. And as a part of this, I'm going to invite you to do something really transparent. That's not going to be easy. Most of you won't do it, and that's okay. But the question, we are, we're going to have some questions that are going to be thrown up on the projector, but number one is, why are you in the need of, great, of the grace of Jesus Christ in this season of your life? It might be this thing that's been hanging over you. You've been having the jacket, and you're ready to take it off. It, it might be something where you're dealing with something really heavy. And you're thinking, I, I, I just need help. I just need to talk to somebody about it. And there's going to be a couple other follow-up questions that you're welcome to have. If you're someone who's sitting there saying, there ain't a chance in the world I'm going to talk. That's fine. Okay? Totally fine. Do me this favor. Put the grace of Jesus Christ on display in the way that you listen to the people who do share. This is a space where grace needs to be abundant. Where people who are willing to put themselves out there and say, here's why I need Jesus Christ. This is where your journey of healing can begin. So during this time, let me, may we find communion. May we find people that we're able to say, hey, I don't have it all together. But I do worship someone who did. And gave his life for me so that I can have it all together, even though I don't. You have this opportunity to experience grace in Jesus Christ in a way that perhaps you never have before. Let's commune together.